This is Paul Cherry, author of Questions That Sell, the powerful process for discovering what your customer really wants. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Paul Cherry to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his second edition of his best-selling book, Questions That Sell, the powerful process for discovering what your customer really wants. Paul Cherry is a coach, speaker, consultant, and best-selling author. He specializes in sales effectiveness development with an emphasis on asking smart, intuitive questions, completely different from your host, that help galvanize successful customer relationships. Now, for the past two decades, he's worked with more than 1,200 organizations and businesses in a wide array of industries. And he's been featured in hundreds of news sites and print publications, including Kiplinger's Personal Finance, Selling Power, Investor's Business Daily, and Inc. Magazine. His other books include Questions That Get Results and his even newer book, The Ultimate Sales Pro. Paul is the founder and president of the company Performance-Based Results, which delivers B2B sales training and performance coaching to teams and managers in corporations across the USA and Canada, including 175 of the Fortune 500 and over a thousand entrepreneurial companies looking to dominate their niche markets. And interesting fact, Paul is the first author on the Marketing Book Podcast from the first state, Delaware. <laughs> Paul, congratulations on the second edition of Questions That Sell, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Uh, thank you, Doug. A pleasure to be here. So, Delaware. I've been there several <laughs> times. Uh, for me, it brings to mind Delaware Punch, which actually was originally from Ohio. Just Oh, you know, yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of useless information in my brain, <laughs> but you want me on your team when you play Trivial Pursuit. Uh, Delaware, the home of uh, Vice President Joe Biden, and one yes. of my all-time favorite bands, George Thorogood and the oh. Delaware Destroyers. <laughs> You're bringing back my college days. Yeah, <laughs> Let me go get a beer. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of college, you went to the University of Delaware, which, if I'm not mistaken, that makes you a fighting blue hen. Am I right? <laughs> oh, man, you're good, Doug. <laughs> I didn't, hey, everyone, I didn't feed him any of this stuff. Boy, you got it down. Yes. This episode sponsored by Visit Delaware. Oh, little state of Delaware, how still we see the light. <laughs> so, Paul, you actually have a much newer book, but I appreciate the opportunity to interview you about your other book, sure. uh, Questions That Sell, because... It has even more relevance to all the marketers that are listening, although there are lots of sales folks. Now, I just have to say from a personal standpoint, this is not a long book, but damn it, Cherry, I read it so slowly because there were so many helpful things for my business and my clients. Yes. So it was like, oh, great. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Doug. So this, <laughs> it was too useful. So sometimes I'll breeze through these and I'll think, wow, that's really interesting. You know, not necessarily something that's a, a hot button, but really fascinating. Yes. This one was like, all right, now wait a minute. I got to actually do this. Yes. <laughs> so, so yes. Uh, but let me just say, you know, the, there's always a first time listener on the podcast and they're saying, well, wait a minute, this is the Marketing Book Podcast. Why is there a book about sales on the Marketing Book Podcast? Well, in addition to single malt scotch, mm -hmm. the host really likes sales books. And mm -hmm. I have a lot of books about content marketing, but honestly, and they're all good, mm -hmm. they're really good, but I get more content ideas from reading sales books than I do from reading content marketing books. Mm. Now, in fairness, a lot of those content marketing books are telling you how to do yes. it. 
but I get so many ideas from reading about the life of a salesperson and the things that work well for a salesperson. And of course, I'm a business owner, so I'm, that's why I'm stealing a lot of yes. this. But you just uh, this week, I got an advanced copy of a research report from uh, CSO Insights, mm-hmm. which you're probably familiar with, mm-hmm. the research arm of Miller Hyman. And you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And they said that sales and marketing alignment continue to be an enormous problem. Yes. I, it was it was actually worse than I thought it had been a couple of years ago. Anyway, the reason I mentioned that is because if marketing people can read sales books and spend time with their salespeople and spend a day with them, go on a sales yes. call if you've never been on one, or as Anthony Anarino says, go on 100 sales calls if you're a marketer, you will start to align the marketing and sales of your business a little bit better. And don't wait for your C-suite to tell you to do that. And don't wait for the salespeople to go, hey, marketing person, we want to get better aligned with you. We That's not going to happen. They're not going to call. It's really up to you to provide that leadership. And, you know, the, the other thing that just th- this book was an antidote for in that same CSO Insights report, it talked about how, again, I'm not making this up, the most effective selling organizations are customer centric, meaning they truly are focused on their customers. Yes. A lot of them pay lip service to that. The other thing was they sell along the way the customer wants to buy rather than trying to plow through their own sales process. Yes. And they provide insights to their customers. And that's where this book, it's just like, um, now I see why it's come out in a second edition because it's so, it was written in 2006, but I, I almost want to say it's even more relevant now. Yeah, the second came out, uh, what is it, the end of uh, 16. So yes, had to update and expand upon those things. So yes, you're right. So Paul, you have two daughters, Brooke and Mackenzie. Yes. Uh, a careful reading of your book will tell. And I've got to tell you just a real quick story uh, about how, so you, you're the father of daughters. I have a daughter, Emma, who just turned 21 this week, uh. and she's a college student. And this probably wasn't the case with your daughters, but I think a lot of times my daughter and certainly my son, you know, they thought their dad was probably not all that bright. <laughs> and they, I'm sure they still do. They're very nice. They wouldn't say that to me. They would, they would say it in the next room. So she's 21, but before she got her driver's license, so she must have been 14 or 15, she was applying for a job to teach sailing at, the, uh, at our Norfolk Yacht Club oh. here in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And she needed a ride there. So we were driving over, and this is a girl that has lots of self-confidence. You know, <laughs> there's no concern there. Right. Kind of makes things happen for herself. But on the way over there, she asked me, so, do you have any suggestions on, you know, any interview tips? It was like, I was just so delighted to be asked for some help. And I said, well, you know, answer the questions, but when you talk to the manager, um, maybe you could ask some questions. And she says, well, like what? And I said, well, why don't you ask him to describe what his ideal candidate would be for this sailing instructor? Yes. And. Then I read your book and I thought, holy cow, Douglas, you, you may have, you know, even a blind squirrel gets a nut. <laughs> and so I picked her up. She had a big smile on her face after the interview. And I said, how did it go? She goes, wow, that really worked. Like, you know, she was probably thinking, maybe my dad isn't a complete gold. <laughs> so she said the guy spent about seven or eight minutes describing yes. what the job was. And then he said, do you have any questions? And so she asked him that question. She said he spoke for 30 minutes yes. and he poured his heart out. She got the job. She taught there for two summers. And then the next summer, she was up at the Nantucket Yacht Club teaching sailing. So oh. it's like there's something in this for every listener. Yes. So anyway, you say the only way to succeed is to know your buyer better. Not just what's posted on their company website, or their LinkedIn page, but their hopes, their vision, their, their fears. The things they reveal only to those they trust And the only way to get that deep knowledge is by asking the right questions in the right way. Now, Paul, you say, and this is going to frighten some listeners out there, particularly all the salespeople that listen, the role of the salesperson as a provider of information, as a walking, talking brochure, is obsolete. Yes. Please explain. When you touched upon customer-centric, the key is getting to know the customer to the point of what we call customer intimacy. So when you know, if you are the provider of information, it's about logic. But when you get to understand the drivers, the needs, you know, the desires and hopes, now we're getting to the emotions. And you and I know, Doug, that when emotions and logic cross, 
typically which one rules. Emotions. That's right. Let's get to the emotions. Why? Because we create a sense of urgency. And I want to dive deeper. And, you know, you were interviewing Lee Saltz of uh, the book Differentiation. And Sales Differentiation, yeah, yes. And it resonated with me because, you know, one of the, the only thing in today's marketplace of differentiator is the ability to take those relationships that you have and, and drive them deeper, okay? Make mm-hmm. them more meaningful. That's the differentiator in a commodity market, especially if you're trying to push information, especially when customers aren't listening. So that's yeah. why I'm driving home the questioning. That's that's the tool, the technique to build, cultivate, manage, and motivate the relationships. Yeah, and just in case uh, folks didn't catch that, you write also that if you think your job is to sell stuff, you are an endangered species. Mm. Yeah. When you say that to audiences when you speak, what, what kind of feedback do you get? Are, are they frightened? Are they surprised? What, what do you explain to them? I think that it's, it's, um, it's an interesting how you say that because – most people get that today. And if you think about it, it's kind of like, I'll give you a, a correlation analogy. It's like when we talk about, you know, whether it's um, developing healthier habits, okay, losing weight, um, you know, improving our lifestyle, getting a new job. People know, have the knowledge, there's more information available today, today what we should be doing. But it's the behavior that too often is lacking, and that's doing it doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's getting people to do it. And I'll give you an example. I was just on a, I go out do a lot of coaching in the field and the salesperson was telling me, yeah, I, I know the importance of getting to the pain. I got to give, because if I can get to the pain, I can understand the needs. So he's telling me all the right things. And what, of course we go out on the call and he's doing the, he gets sucked into the product demonstration, <laughs> you know, 20 minutes, looks up, takes a deep breath and goes, so do you have any questions? And I'm like, oh, you know what I mean? So it's the knowledge versus the behavior. I'm looking for behaviors, and it's getting salespeople to demonstrate. Okay? That's the challenge, the ability to engage. And you know what, Doug? Here's what it comes down to. What's the litmus test of a good sales call? And it comes down to this. Who did most of the talking? If the customer did the bulk of the talking, guess what? Great sales call. If the salesperson did most of the talking, not a good call. That's right. That's the way to measure success. Yeah. So in uh, the book, you also explain something that seems maybe a little counterintuitive, but you say that trust begins when buyers reveal themselves to you, not the other way around. What's going on there? So we have your audience, okay, for example, we're dealing with what we call prospective relationships and established relationships. Now, there's things that I want to know, and I go back to the emotional drivers, okay? You know, understanding what motivates people. So what I'm trying to understand those emotional drivers are, whether it's they're trying to eliminate risk, gain a competitive edge, or are they trying to be more progressive and grow in their career or make their lives easier? So all I'm trying to do is just to find out if I can – part of that process is if they're re- willing to reveal, I'm going to ask those tough questions, Okay. The tough questions are, so, okay, tell me, an example would be, Doug, is so tell me where you see, you know, where you see yourself, you know, a year from now. And why is that important to you? And what do you think are the hurdles that are going to get in the way? And what are the right. risks if you don't achieve those goals? What might that mean to you from a professional level? And, Doug, what might that mean to you personally? Mm-hmm. I'm getting into you know what I call asking questions that I'm starting to really peel away to understand what drives you. Now, s- some people are saying, oh, that sounds easy. Oh, no, 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 no. Try it. It ain't that easy because you know what happens? We're scared. We're yeah, scared. We're, I'm afraid of somebody saying, well, those are kind of intrusive exactly. questions. <laughs> and guess what, Doug? It means how good is your relationship? You know, you tell me you have a great relationship with somebody, but oh, you won't ask those questions. And then, of course, I'm saying, well, how good is your relationship? Because you've got to make it more meaningful. And it- That's right. And you talk in the book about how so many salespeople overestimate the strength uh, of their yeah. existing relationships. But let me just recap something you just said. It was really important. You say you want to help the customer in three ways. Mm-hmm. And this has enormous implications for all those marketers creating content. Minimizing the customer's risk. Yes. Enhancing the customer's competitive advantage or competitive standing, and achieving the customer's goals. Yes. Uh, only tangentially will your, will your uh, uh, demonstration of all your, your features and benefits include there. But, Paul, 
an excellent salesperson, you say, not only must be an expert in her field, but also be willing to embrace the role of professional shrink. What do you mean by professional shrink? We've heard the saying, you know, I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And I know that, that, that really, I was looking at it up the other day. Where are the origins of that? Because many people have quoted that saying. And supposedly that goes back to uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so what the, okay, what that really means is that, and it gets what you're saying, the dispenser of information, putting that aside, because where I'm getting it, when I ask the questions, when I'm listening, that's the real heart of the selling. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, actually said, the, the famous author poet says, you know, the most meaningful way to customer intimacy, you know, intimacy of somebody is the ability to listen. And so, you know, it isn't, there's a two-pronged approach. I ask great questions, but more importantly, I really want to understand and connect what's what's important to you. And it goes beyond, Doug, about what we call, you know, salespeople want to create this connection of likability. I want you to like me. I want to show that we have a lot of in common and that we're, we're similar. And, you know, that's nice, but that's superficial. Okay. That's what I mean about getting deeper. So I need to understand is from salespeople, and I'll give you some examples of what I mean because we, we do this test, for example, when I when I do my live training classes, when I go into companies, and I'll say, give me your, you know, in your group, small groups, give me your top 10 questions, okay? And it's it, I don't care whether they're entry-level salespeople or 30 years of experience and they're making six-figure, even seven-figure salaries. And it comes down to this. The majority of the questions that people ask typically, and I t- ask whether it's a first-time call or those relationships they go back to again and again, give me examples. Now, here's what happens. The majority of their questions fall into um, what I call the present moment. Yes. You know, what's going on? How's business? Anything going on here? What can I quote on? Got any problems? You know, got any issues? What are your needs? What are you trying to accomplish? So 87% go in the present and then about 10, 11% go in the future. And here's the interesting part, Doug. 3% max go into the past. Yes. Well, clearly you're reading my screen here. (laughs) That really, I'd never heard that before. Explain what you mean when you say go into the past. It almost seemed like a past key. To get to these emotional things that I had never thought of doing. It's, it's, um, yeah. So it's, and usually, and it's funny when they'll say, I'll see, here's why, why people, salespeople don't ask questions in the past. Cause they'll say, well, there's no money in the past. It's dead. It's done. It's irrelevant. What mm. I needed to where the business is now or in the future. True. But everything you want to know to sell into the future is where in the past. Mm-hmm. Where's the pain, the frustration, the challenges, the hurts? It's in the past. So you need to understand the past in order to get into the future. If we hammer people with too many questions in the present, for example, what's going on? What can I quote on? What are your specs? What are your needs? What are your problems, challenges, opportunities? We either put people to sleep or we interrogate or annoy them. Yeah. So that's where I'm saying – you know, here's where salespeople to cultivate better relationships. That is, when getting back to this intimacy that I shared with you, spend more time into the past and the future because the present will take care of itself. They'll fill in the present. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, yeah, and absolutely. If no one else is doing it, uh, it just, it really, it, you know, I learned something in every book I read and it's often something new I had never thought of. And that was one of the things in your, one of the many things in your book where it was like, talk about the past. They also know the past. Yes. And they might be less emotional oh. uh, or they might not take a credit for it. But I just thought that was brilliant. Talk to me about what's happened before. And it really, you get almost everything you need about the future. <laughs> In terms of how they've made decisions, yeah. how they've uh, how they've how they've gone about funding uh, an investment, whatever you whatever you happen to be selling. Yes. So let me ask you, what do you mean when you say that you think of a question as a truth-seeking missile? Yes. Yes. Okay. So as a truth-seeking missile, this came out just the other day with a client of mine, uh, and he talks about okay, we all claim we have great relationships out there, and we do. But part of the truth-seeking missile is that I want to always – if I have a good relationship or great relationship, I should always be testing it, okay, testing it and evaluating it because we have to get to the truth. 
all right? People who really trust us, okay, and have confidence in us will tell us what's going on. So in other words, because – and the fact is in, in this world of selling and marketing, the, your customers are always dealing with competitive threats and challenges and opportunities. Their threats and challenges, but also even our competitors going in there to infiltrate and try to sell against us. So what I mean is this truth-seeking missile is that I really need to understand is, you know, what's going on today? Where do you see are the challenges, opportunities moving forward? And what are the hurdles that are getting in the way? I want people to tell me how they're adapting and evolving and, and dealing with these challenges because there is something is going to come up and which I can help them solve, okay? May not be able to solve the whole problem, but if there's something I can do to resolve, that's part of the relationship process. Ideally, it's my product or service that can fulfill it, or so, in some ways I can find something to do that is in my arsenal, or I can uh, introduce them to a source, a third-party source to help them. Does that make sense? Yes, and when I think of a heat-seeking missile, you think of maybe one uh, being fired at, a, at an aircraft, and of course the aircrafts will throw off flares or chaff to try and divert the path of the heat-seeking missile. And you know, what came to mind for me was all these answers you sometimes get from a prospect, maybe early on, but it's almost like they're throwing out flares to divert you <laughs> from seeking the truth. Well, there's where we... Every time we, we do our live sessions, for example, we talk about the established relationships. This was a study done by the Dartnell Research Institute, and I talk about um, percentage of, of the time that customers these, – these are established relationships – customers who are not telling you what is on their minds. And I ask people, okay, write it down, what the percentage is, and here's what they, they typically write down, 80% to 90% to 95%. And guess what? They're right. They're spot on. So we introduced the concept. The concept is where people, customers are hiding their true feelings. Mm -hmm. And the question that comes out, we open up. Why do, and, and they agree. Yeah, they do. Why do customers hide their true feelings? And the reality is the answers are is because for a host of reasons. You know, and the host of reasons are is because um, uh, they want to leverage you, or it's a form of power, control, or negotiating, or shopping around, or making sure their established relationships competitively are being honest, or they lack the trust or confidence in you, or they don't want confrontation, okay? Mm -hmm. Or the fact that they really do like you, and they don't want to they don't want to lose you. So that's what I mean, that truth-seeking missile. Just because you think, oh, they told me everything. No, no, no. It's amazing that you – you know what they – here, Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, you know who my favorite person is? <laughs> Mark Twain, the famous author of the 18 – what, 1850s, right? Mm -hmm. He says, my favorite person is my tailor. Why? Because each and every time that I see my tailor, he does measurements each and every time. So here's my point here is that I'm constantly checking and va validating and evaluating that sure in my relationships because things are, are changing constantly, always keeping a pulse where we are today, where we're going. So I'm in alignment with them. Yeah, yeah. It really doesn't stop when that first sale is made, but uh, unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of companies think about that. <sighs> um, yeah. Now, you say there are good questions and there are bad questions. Can you talk about what uh, value or lack thereof, has to do with bad questions? Well, there's where – I'll give you just some brief examples of what I call some questions, you know, how you can make – the whole point of what salespeople need to do is that how you – know, it's all about the how. We talk about, you know, the relevance of, you know, relationships and creating more value with customers. But they'll come back to me, how do I create and craft good questions? Well, it's, it's pretty simple. What it's, one of the concepts is to take um, like a question. I'll give you an example. Uh, let's just say a salesperson would ask the following question. The question is, are you the decision maker? And then I pose to people, is that, a, is that an important question to ask? And everyone will typically say, well, yeah. It's important information. Yes, that's right. And then the qu next question is, is it a dangerous or risky question to ask? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And I go, why? Well, because um, it's kind of – it's belittling or it's demeaning or you may not get the truth. It's closed-ended. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. How would I make – you need that information, but how would you ask that question in a way that you're going to get valuable input? 
So I, I talk about descriptive openers. So think about asking descriptive openers to make it more engaging. So a descriptive opener is nothing more than such as dropping the who, what, where, when, or why and using a descriptive opener such as describe for me or tell me or share with me, explain. So for example, are you the decision maker? What I would say is describe for me. Oh, well, I think everyone would say, oh, yeah, I'm the decision maker. Right, exactly. You're just – you would that's, – that's what happens. You actually get person, somebody to lie or not tell the truth. Or right, and it's like if you're selling in the home or you're selling to a consumer, just a little tip. This is free. This is free, okay? And you ask the guy, the husband. Yes. Do you need your wife involved? And he says, <laughs> no, I make all the decisions around here. I can guarantee yes. you he's wrong. Yes, yes, and it's it's and they're just it's a it's a concept of what people are just they're putting up a front, okay? Yes. because they don't want to. You've kind of cornered them with that question. You really have, yes, and it's 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 shame on us for asking it. So, but we've seen how people will actually, you know, help me understand your decision making process, or help take me through. You see, because people are going to be more open and forthright. Better questions elicit better responses. So, Paul, let me ask you a couple of very specific things. Educational questions. Yes. Now, that may mean different things to different people. So, I'd like you to give an example. But how do they, how do they establish you as a partner versus a product peddler? Yes, yes. And it's – so, you know, Voltaire, philosopher, says, you know, uh, the person who asks um, – what we're talking about is um, you can really judge a person's intelligence – by the questions they ask versus the answers they give. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Huh. And so what if you look at an educational question, an educational question is nothing more than referencing a source, an idea, an article, maybe or a trade show or a customer conversation. It, all it is. And I'll give you an example. It says, you know, I was talking to another customer. I was talking to another client. They told me one of the frustrations they're having experiences on how to resolve this issue. Others are co customers are telling me, no, that's not the problem. What they're experiencing is this. I'm curious as to what you've been seeing so far and what you've been doing about it to address that. So I, I introduce opposing ideas in a way to leverage to see where they're going. And again, it could mm -hmm. be it could be a Wall Street Journal or it could be a trade publication they read, but it has to be third party. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant, and you can see right there how you got right past the uh, the security barrier, sort of. You got you got right past uh, the, the the front that they're putting up because you've drawn them in by asking a question. Next question: uh, If you could explain what a lock-on question is and an impact question. Yes. Okay. So so the lock-on. Oh, and people love the lock-on because. Up to now, you and I have been talking about some of the strategic questions. Remember, I talk about mm -hmm. getting out of the present, going to the bigger picture. So, tell me where you see yourself twelve to thirty-six months from now. How? What? What are your plans to get there? That's sort of the big uh -huh. picture. Lock on is the tactical. Lock on is about listening for what somebody is saying, what they're not saying, and what's the hidden meaning or motion. Okay. So, I, I'm getting tactical here. What all that means is is that people are giving you clues. All right. Mm -hmm. And we need to listen for the, the simplest – go back to what I said about emotions and logic crossing. Um, here's the clue. I'm, li I'm listening for emotions, all right? So – and I'm also listening for level of commitments, okay, or sense of urgency. So when somebody mm -hmm. says um, – okay, I'll, let me give you an example. Uh, Doug, I'll be a customer, okay? And there's really no right or wrong answer here, okay? But let me play it with you, okay? I'll be a customer, and I'm going to say a statement. We're thinking about looking at – different vendors moving forward. Okay, and I'll say it again. We're thinking about um, choosing different vendors moving forward. Okay, if there was one word you might lock onto, what might that be? Thinking. Oh, Actually, there's about three I heard, but you know, when you say thinking, what? tell me about uh, that thought process. Beautiful. Or when you say moving forward, uh, 
that could that could point you to a timeline question. Yes, perhaps. yes, okay. yes. And here's where so we'll we'll lock on the thinking because I want to know thought process because it tells me whether there's a sense of urgency or not. It'll also go into the past. Now that opens up to say, tell me what you know what you what you've eliminated, what you're still considering, uh, or what might be the priorities, the criteria. So what I'm doing, just like your daughter asked that question, ideal qualities you're looking for in like a candidate. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Thought thought process. Now that now we can have fun with that because I'll go back and I'll say, okay, there was other hidden clues there. What else would you lock on to? And they're all looking at me. Okay. Right. Right. But you but they also are getting that you're listening. Yes. Yes. And you're able to get a little bit of traction there. And then you can you can uh keep going. It's really I just keep thinking of it as getting well, let's let's go back to my daughter who now that she's twenty one has no interest in fake IDs. Not that she ever had any, but I, I heard from her older brother that that was an issue. It's almost she was just trying to get past that the the bouncer. Right. Okay. Right. And so many of these things bring that to mind where you're just trying to get past uh, the wall that they put up. But, you know, the other lock-on question uh, brings to mind once uh, when I was younger and I was in the Army and I was off at uh, airborne school learning mm-hmm. to jump out of perfectly good airplanes. Mm-hmm. And I remember during the training, my form as I jumped out wasn't quite correct. And the drill instructor started screaming at me, and at, which I was used to, and he called out my number. There was a number on my helmet. And he said, Charlie 218, you look like shit. <laughs> and I remember, and I, I shouldn't have said this because I got in a lot of trouble. I said, Drill Sergeant, when you say shit, can you be more specific? <laughs> I got in a lot of trouble for that. But that was that was a lock-on question, Paul Cherry, and I didn't even know it. That's, so. But you hit on something that's so important because what will happen is a salesperson will say, it will hear the, a customer saying, yeah, we're having some problems with a current vendor. And it's like, you know, Oh, you're having some problems. Oh, and then what do you think? Exactly? Oh, oh, you should switch your vendor. And they go into their feature benefit sell. And guess what they just did? You, if unless it's low-hanging fruit, easy sale, you lost the opportunity. Or you created a real stall because you had a chance to lock on. You had some problems. Tell me more about those problems. What exactly is happening? What's been costing you? Who else is affected? And what might be the impact on you? Which is you asked me about the impact impact question. That's yes. What might be the impact on you and your business if things don't change? Yes, that brought to mind Neil Rackham. You know, the the more that is, and I think that is one of the most powerful questions. If you're able to get to that, can you say a little bit more about impact question? You started down that that road there, but it's sort of like bringing the future to the present for them and and maybe they don't they will not have thought that way. Well, it tells you it's the whole point of this Im- impact or implication question is I need to know your sense of urgency and your level of commitment. You will t- I'm I look for the customer always gauging them evaluating how I need to do business with you. How do we or collaborate to do more business together? Uh, or it tells me, Paul, you're going in the wrong direction because if they say, no, it's not going to affect us at all or very little because it's just really not an issue. I'm going down what we call the wrong hole. So I need to get back on track what's important to the customer. So that's why the impact and, 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 and a real brevity. I talk about it in my book. It's three stages of commitment. Should stage. You know, when the customer, when they're saying, no, it's not an issue, I guess the impact question, no, not an issue at all, we're, we're fine, everything content, happy, we're complacent and all. It sells right, like, ah. that's the should stage. These stages are brilliant. The should stage, it's like they're kicking tires. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Oh, no. You know what they're doing? The should stage, they're- Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, you've got the <laughs> no. the have to, the want to, and the should stage. Oh, I'm teasing you, though. I'm teasing you here because okay. the should stage, because I'm going back to what you just said, and that is when somebody in the should stage, watch out, they will literally- should all over you. <laughs> Sorry. You, I had to take that lock on that you gave. I give it back to you. But yeah. My name's Paul Cherry. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Two shows on Saturday. Sorry. But I know for the for the audience, S H O U L D is what I said, please. Thank I'll you. Swear. The Thanks. host is the only one with the foul mouth. <laughs> but explain explain that should stage though, and and as well as the other two, because those are um very helpful lenses. Yes, I'm listening for the to understand as I engage the lock on, I need to know what stage of commitment you're in. And the fact mm-hmm. is, it gets back to understanding if somebody is, they're, they're, everybody's motivated to do something or not motivated. 
That's all. And, and you'll see it more in personal issues in terms of not – but mostly we're dealing with business to business. But I mean yeah. in, in your personal life, you'll see people who are trying to go back to school, get a new job, make more money, lose weight, quit, quit smoking or whatever. You see how the should stage and want to and have to plays out. And mm-hmm. it's, when you, it, it's what people know but what they do or, or not do. So if somebody has no desire, you know, from a selling standpoint, I'm going down the wrong path or I'm talking to the wrong person, perhaps. So as it's in selling, I need to recognize that maybe I need to back off and not invest a lot of time, effort, and energy with this particular individual because they're just in this moment. It's not a you know somebody for example who is in the job thirty years they're going to be retiring within the next twelve months they don't want change you know that kind of example should stage that's fair now mm-hmm. then you get what I call the want to stage this is all I mean and you'll hear it in the clues with the lock ons where we want to we really would like to improve we would like to change we would hope to see they give you what we want to want to hope to yes like to. Now, here's where they negate – listen for the clues because we really would like to do it, but they negate it immediately with the word but or however. See? We yes. really want to, but we don't have the money in the budget. We, we would really like to, but I have to run this by my boss or but we don't have enough time or but next year. You know, all this but, but, but. What they've told you is you haven't gotten to the real heart of the issues. And when I need to dig deeper and that getting people to the have-to stage, all that means is where they recognize the need for change outweighs the desire to stick with status quo. When, that's human nature. In selling and our personalized, in equilibrium, we're always going to choose status quo versus change. Questioning mm-hmm. helps people. This is the Socratic method. People get this, but I need to help you get you to articulate. So if you have a problem, concern, or issue, all I'm doing is asking you to verbalize it, articulate it, expand upon it to the point that you can you know, help me understand the quantification of the problem, who else is involved, what's causing the problem, what it's costing in terms of time, money, resources, opportunity. And then the impact question, if you don't change, what might happen? Well, if I don't change, it means we're going to continue to lose market share. And if you continue to lose market share, how might that affect you, you, you? See the personal? So let me ask one other question. This comes in with, with marketing. And a lot of times, you know, you talk with companies and they, they want to talk about their marketing. And the first thing they want to do is, well, we want to generate more leads. I say, okay, great. But then I try to steer the question back to, well, before we do that, well, let's talk about what you're doing to sell to your current customers. because newsflash, it's a lot easier to sell to your current yes. customers, and the revenue's a lot faster, the sales cycle's shorter, Yes, and it's like they're just forgetting that. Let's talk about cross-selling and upselling opportunities. Why, and even referrals, let's throw those in there. Um, that's where the real money is. That's where the profits are. Yes, M- Maybe some salespeople aren't getting compensated as well for selling to existing customers, but why do salespeople fail to make the most of those uh, opportunities. Yeah, you you hit on something that's more so near and dear to me, and it goes back really to what we originally started with. That if we think we really have good relationships, here's what salespeople, when I ask them about cross selling and upselling, um, they get a little dancy and 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 resistant. Like, well, I don't want to be pushy, I don't want to be aggressive, I don't want to I don't want to exploit the re- relationship, I don't want to come across greedy. And I'm like, first, I I, I have to bite my tongue. I'm like, Rrr, what are you talking about? <laughs> this is not about. This is about. When you really have the intimacy with, with a customer because you really understand, number one, where they're coming from, where they are today, where they need to be, you're compl- you have the, you know, to be able to create, craft a customized solution that really will be meaningful to them and their organization and their end users. More of a reason why. It's not about greedy. It's about helping. It's not about exploiting. It's about truly being a strategic partner. Here's where, again, questionings come in place. It'd be go like this, broad, very broad question. It'd be like, Doug, is there anybody that you know that I could talk to about my services? Is there anybody you know? And guess what? You, when you ask such a broad, open-ended, it's like a how can I help you question in a retail environment when you, when you walk in the store and the clerk comes up to you. It's a push-away question. Um, nope, just looking. And you, what you're doing is you're shutting down their thought process because it's too broad. What I recommend is, is that, you know, let me ask you something. You know, who are two, three, two or three individuals that you admire and, and respect 
that would like to have a conversation about what we may have to offer to see if it would be a good fit. I narrowed down to two or three individuals that you admire and respect. That means people who share similar of the same values as you, okay, that you're close with, okay? It helps give clarity of thought so that you, you have a much better chance of gaining insight into the referral process. Yeah, and you're not having to make them think so damn hard. Exactly, exactly, yes. If they make people think too hard, they shut down. Yeah, so that was such a broad one. Or the, in the book, you talk about how uh, I'm, I'm trying to reach out to this company. Is, is there anyone you know there who might be able to help point me in the right direction? Yeah. You're not saying, do you have a close friend there that will wire me money? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. One other question I wanted to ask you was about social selling. You got a whole chapter on that. And, you know, you and I and some of the, uh, some of these other uh, really smart authors who write about sales, they they think that's a bit of a smokescreen. Social selling, there's a lot of salespeople wasting a lot of yes. time on social media. Mm-hmm. And you make that real clear. But there are a couple of things that some salespeople are not doing that they should. Talk particularly about LinkedIn. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because you know, I like you and me and everyone, we get a lot of requests for LinkedIn and, you know, I, I be real careful because we can waste a lot of time. Here's where I, I, I look at my selling career. I started in 1986 prior to, to, um, you know, the world of the internet. So we wonder if pe- people are thinking, wow, how did you ever survive? And the reality is that it was much harder to gain access to plan to strategize for key accounts. And I'll tell you what, planning today is easier so much easier than ever before. And why is that? Because of the access of information. And I don't just mean in terms of research and you know websites, but how I can identify people in their emails. It's like I can find out just, just like you found out all about me. I'm amazed. But, and, but what I need to do is, you know, just spend, you know, a few minutes. It just shows the credibility and the trust. And I'll do that on LinkedIn because there's a new product launch. There's, they've been published in an article or, or something that I can reference or a new location. I just did this with, with a prospect. This was six months ago. I won an account and I, I got on the LinkedIn. I saw they knew had a new branch. It was just three miles from me. I drove by it on my way to the airport. I followed up to the CEO with a, an email saying, I just went by your branch. Congratulations to see you expand in a Delaware market because there's a lot of lucrative opportunities, manufacturing plans. Hey, I'm you know with my expertise in, in manufacturing, I'd like to share with some ideas to get together to help ensure that you can you know continue to grow in this market. He responded to me in you know 24 hours and said, yeah, I'd love to talk to you because you got to be credible and reference. Get specific with people when you have access to this information. See what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's when it's. But just a hey, you want to join my network? Where where are we going with this? You know what I mean? It's not selling. There was one other thing you talked about in there that I'd like you to mention about how social media can increase your visibility and credibility. And you talk about specifically questions, not posting stuff about yourself and your blog posts and all that, but talk about how posting questions on LinkedIn uh, can be so advantageous and it doesn't seem to be used that much. Yeah, because it's it's one thing we want to, you know, we want to impress people. It's 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 kind of like um, you know, when your friends post on Facebook, you know, their latest uh, uh travel adventure and you're like you roll your eyes like, "Oh, man, my life is so dull and boring." It's like you you, you yeah, you can create some envy with that approach for your friends if they do that. What I'm I'm, I'm looking to engage um, and it is harder in so when you're trying to engage with a question, but an intelligent question and being humble, humble to say, hey, I came across this problem. Other customers are saying this. I'm curious as to what others are experiencing on this and what they've tried to resolve it. Thoughts, please. You know what I mean? Get Invite people into the discussion because mm-hmm. everybody wants to share their opinions and ideas if you give them an environment that is warm and receptive. To, just like customers want, want to do that. That's what questions mm-hmm. do. They're inviting to hear their story. I, I'm a big believer in that. In all, When it's selling and marketing, I'm a big believer if it comes down to this. I want to hear your story. That's it with customers. What's their yeah, story? And people want to sell it. That's right. Your story yeah, is more powerful and more important than me. Right. And after I read that, I realized, oh, I've seen some other people that have done that. And it what's also beneficial is that you know if you've touched a nerve or not. Thank you. You that's that's what I'm looking for. When I I'm be <laughs> when I always am about under uh, connecting with a nerve. That's it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, there was just one other thing, and it had to do, you know, you've got all kinds of information here about closing, which I know is very popular with the sales Mm -hmm. folks. We're not going to go into that. But there's one other thing I just want to read from your section on uh, cold calling. Mm -hmm. And it was a very interesting beginning to the chapter. And you say, you talk about how cold calling is uh, a problem, but it's a fact of life. It's the hardest thing that salespeople do, but you've got to do it. Yes. And you say, cold calling seems to be out of fashion these days. I'm constantly hearing from companies promoting all kinds of lead generation solutions. Mm -hmm. Looking at you, agencies, and I'm an agency guy. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's no question that companies need to generate sales leads, but it seems to me that many of these offerings seem to be promising that advanced marketing technology can finally eliminate the cold sales call, that companies can nurture prospects through a process untouched by human hands Mm -hmm. until they are warm enough to merit a call from a salesperson. Mm. I'm all for making life easier for salespeople, and it's true that salespeople can no longer afford to engage in the slow, laborious, pick-and-shovel prospecting of days gone by. Mm. But the idea that salespeople will only be talking to warmed-up, ready-to-buy prospects who are waiting for their call is, frankly, a pipe dream. And I am afraid, you know, as much as we we help companies with lead generation and all that type of thing, but there are, you know, regardless of what you say, they hear leads and they think that that's all they're going to need to do is just pay a company like ours or, or whatever. And that's why, you know, live and learn. The first thing, the last thing we're going to talk to them about is generating leads. The first thing we're going to do is, well, what are you doing? Yes. And, and, and who are your target? Who are your, uh, who are your desired accounts? Let, let's talk about those first, and then we'll talk about this other stuff. But it's frustrating uh, for probably sales managers who are sitting there with salespeople waiting for leads to come in. But it's also frustrating because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of how uh, leads work. And it also brings to mind Aaron Ross's book. He's the author of uh, Predictable Revenue and From Impossible to Inevitable. And he said, look, if you want fast growth, you've got to have a balanced lead generation diet of seeds, nets, and spears. Seeds Mm -hmm. being all your existing relationships, your customers, your employees. Spears are your targeted accounts you want to go after uh, as if with a spear. And nets are leads generated by marketing. But what what else are you encountering with these companies that are, I mean, how do you help organizations get their salespeople to move off of waiting for Godot? Oh, I know. I just was talking with a, a, a client uh, and that's, you know, the, they, the marketing was just so frustrated because they're pumping out the leads and the salespeople are not taking the in- initiative, the ownership. And they, 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 they think it's prospecting on a lead. It's like, <laughs> this is your Pick up the phone and call them. Introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what's going on? That's a chasm that you talked about between marketing and sales. Yeah. And and to me is, I think salespeople have to, and, and, and working in tandem, you know, that ideal customer though. But I think we're the salesperson. If you, might, you know, the drip marketing approach we talk about, where marketing will we'll talk about, you know, uh, the leads to warm them up to the point Lead that- nurturing. Yeah. yeah. Well, that salespeople need to use the same tactic with prospecting. So whether it's mm-hmm. picking up the phone, okay, you don't get a hold of the person, you leave a powerful creative voicemail, okay, a message. That's going to really prick at the emotions to get them, you know, interested. And, you know, and okay, you don't get a response. You call back again. You try again. Then, you know, you try an email. It's some always come in with some unique messaging, whether it's that gets back to those emotions, something about risk, edge, profitability, simplicity, something. Okay. And then send them an information, a link, an idea, another conversation. What happens is, and you know, because we've heard this. This is old old news, but what does it take? How many touch points until somebody finally will take or converse with you? Well, I think I read in Paul Cherry's book that the number might be eight. No, nah, it's around that. Yeah, and it's <laughs> going to give or take, you know. But but that's what I mean. Yeah. Where I want salespeople, I'm a, I am a, a very passionate about prospecting. It takes more than one outreach. Yes. Basically. More than one touch, I should say. That's, but it's outreach. You don't think think of it as cold. Maybe you could think of it as a little bit warm because you're able to find more information. You know, at a time when it's never been harder to break through. It's, it's never been easier to find out more uh, than in the past. So, Paul, we're really uh, running over, but uh, the book is, is absolutely terrific. And you even have a chapter on questions in emails that you can send to try to get them. <laughs> yes. and, and another one about uh, voicemails. Yes. So it's, it's, it's terrific. Yes. But if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Yeah. Oh, it's simple. Shut up and listen. No truer words ever spoken on the Marketing Book Podcast. The, the, the selling is in the questions. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. Mm-hmm. 
do the math. So, Paul, what books have inspired your work and career? Well, early in my career, you mentioned Neil Rackham, Spin Selling, and I remember that was one of those books that you know I dog-eared, read numerous times, and because it was all about um, you know the the importance of questioning. So yeah, and where and 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 about impact. Yes, that came out in 1988. I know, and it's like you know just a few years out of, I got out of college, so it was a great timing, and and so I that helped me. And then, but my job was really about okay, where it fell short was it didn't get into the crafting, the crafting of the questions. How do you know where do you ask that question at the mm-hmm. beginning, during, and 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 the end of the process? So my I took it further. You know I read. I have a, a good friend, Stephen Schiffman. A book that I'm reading today is Creating Sales Stars, and that's all about managing and motivating the millennial sales force. That is a great book. Uh, I bet that's popular. Yes, yes. Wonderful book that, that I'm really enjoying right now. But I really love that book. I did read, um, put down my last book was Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy. Oh, one of my favorite books. Yes. Honestly. That and Obstacle is the Way. Holy cow. Well, and also I interviewed him about this other book, Perennial Seller. You know, he's like one of those authors like uh, the Heath Brothers or Daniel Pink. Mm-hmm. Just just go ahead and tell Amazon, send me whatever he writes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> because it, they are just phenomenal, phenomenal books. Yeah. So how best can listeners learn more about you and all your books? Uh, you can go to Paul Cherry. It's all one word, paulcherry.com. Terrific. Well, we'll include links to your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, Twitter, and all the uh, books that you've mentioned on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you have subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Questions That Sell, The Powerful Process for Discovering What Your Customer Really Wants. The author is Paul Cherry. Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. And thank you, Doug. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. in Delaware right now, right? Yes, I am. All right. That's right. A little tiny state. You can yes. take t- 20 minutes to walk across. Well, it's uh, nine miles at its uh, most narrow <laughs> strip. Did you know that, Paul, Jerry? No, I didn't. And that's probably where I am because I'm on the northern tip. Okay. Well, it's 36 to nine miles wide. I, I, you know, I do my homework for these interviews, <laughs> Paul. Um, it's the second least populous but most densely populated state. So yeah. we're gonna, we may talk a little bit about Delaware. Okay. okay? That sounds good. 